Welcome to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwindiger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a lovely five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Psych on Twitter. We're here to talk about cybersecurity technology news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take back into the office to help protect your organization. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Uh, do you know that the uh, Microsoft key that was stolen uh, earlier this summer apparently also opened Molotov Cocktease's chastity belt? I did not. I could have sworn it was the one for Maid Marian. Either way, I need a copy. <laughs> Call the locksmith. All right. Actually, you know what? I just realized we dead named Twitter. Oh, we have to call it X. <laughs> I don't know. I do not know. Do you, how, do you, how do you pronounce it? Is it X or someone said it was like X or something like that? I think maybe. <laughs> I think now that I've said that out loud, I think they were making a joke. And well, it's I probably, I, I mean, for, for a long time, it's probably going to be the company formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> I don't know, because I think the X, X.com, I think just redirects to Twitter.com now anyway. So may have jumped the gun a little bit on that transition. X.com. I'll be damned. See, I would have expected that to go to an entirely inappropriate adult website. You mean you're hoping it would? <laughs> I mean, Twitter is kind of an entirely inappropriate adult website. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah, apparently I had heard that he wanted to name PayPal X. I heard uh, that too, yeah. And who was it? Uh, Peter Thiel and the other guy were like, no, out you go. <laughs> Move along. Uh... But anyway, first article for today is the stolen Microsoft key may have opened a lot more than U.S. government email inboxes. And this comes to us from the register. So somehow someone obtained a Microsoft internal private cryptographic key that is used to digitally sign access tokens for its online services. So the key token could be used to sign access tokens, within, which would then look as though they were legitimately issued. And according to Malwarebytes, uh, they defined uh, an authentication uh, or, or explain this as an authentication token allows internet users access to application services, websites, and application programming interfaces, APIs, without having to enter their log credentials each time they visit. Instead, the user, log, the user logs in once and a unique token is generated and shared with the connected applications or websites to verify their identity. So basically one key to get into online properties without actual login credentials. That's pretty nice. I want that for my own, for all my own stuff. Yeah. Until someone else gets a hold of it. Yeah, I guess. Or you forget it in your S3 bucket. Oof. But Microsoft claims that this is something that had happened or was taken advantage of by the Chinese. Of course. And of course. I mean, you, you've got two choices, China or Russia. You know, or nobody else does anything nefarious. <laughs> Surprised we haven't seen more more hacks blamed on Iran. Well, I think you're not seeing that probably just because of the, the focus on the Ukraine war right now. You know, if that were ever to shift to the Middle East, you'd probably hear more about Iran. But of course, the Chinese then use this to access U.S. government agencies for espionage pur purposes. Now, a, a company called Wiz, which is an InfoSec organization that is formed by former Microsoft cloud security engineers, say that they conclude that the, this compromised Microsoft key 
could have allowed attackers to port access tokens to multiple types of Azure Active Directory applications. Any application that that uses the OpenID 2.0 access tokens, which includes Outlook, SharePoint, OneDrive, and Teams. And any customer-owned applications that support login with the Microsoft. Uh, of course, Microsoft says that the Wiz doesn't know what they're talking about. I'm not the Wiz. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a movie, wasn't it? I took one of, like an hour ago. <laughs> it was a movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not a great name for a company. <laughs> but Microsoft says Wiz doesn't know what they're talking about. And you should only listen to Microsoft as the authoritative source of truth about Microsoft stuff. Of course. Uh, that sounds familiar. I think I've heard that somewhere before. <sighs> so after Microsoft realized that they, this happened, they they revoked the, the encryption key and published a list of comp, uh, indicators. So o OWA has stopped accepting tokens issued from the get access token for resource API call for renewal. They block the usage of tokens signed by the, the key in OWA, block the usage of tokens signed with that key. And Microsoft has completely replaced, completed the replacement of the key to prevent threat actors from using it to forge new tokens. So uh, do we know that this is the only one they took? Of course not. And of course, once they had this access, who knows what they did with it? They could have deployed backdoors or other methods of persistence wherever they were at. And Microsoft, in response to this, decided to or agreed to provide all customers with free access to the cloud security logs in September, which is usually only reserved for premium clients. They've, they've also altered the default retention period from 90 days to 180. And this is complete bullshit. <laughs> There's no reason that, or maybe that's a, a bad way to put it, but restricting access to logs based on what you pay is not right. I mean, customers always should have access had access to the logs. If Microsoft wanted to restrict features and capabilities, sure, do that for whatever product you're providing. But saying you're not going to provide the logs that are generated by the servers that you're using, that's, it, it's not right. So it's, it, it's, I, I kind of equate this to needing to ask your landlord who has access to door logs for the, the door to your apartment. And he says, well, you can only see those access logs if you pay to find out, you know, who broke into your apartment, reading your half-life movie fan script and eating your double stuffed Oreos. You are. Yeah. That was, those, that was my main point coming out of this. I was stunned to find out that there were extra logs that we didn't have that I did extra logs that users didn't have access to. I'll come back and edit that out. You know, and I, and I bet users don't even know they didn't have access to logs. The, you know, they didn't even realize that there were additional log generated that they could have had access to while this is going. It's not like they knowingly decided to opt out of receiving, receiving additional logs. Yeah. And I feel like, especially Microsoft, Microsoft provides so much stuff. It's hard to know what they have and what they don't. And the logs are not all in the same place either. Some of them are in the security center. Some of them are in the audits or whatever. They, they mentioned some audit thing here where some logs are in. The logs are not all in consistent places. It's a pain. It's a giant pain. Well, I mean, Microsoft logging is, I'm not a big fan 
to begin with, but still not allowing you to have access to the logs for stuff that you're paying, I think is not right. I mean, they expect you to be responsible for what's going on in your tenant, but they don't want to give you access to the logs that give you an insight into what is going on. That's mm -hmm. improper to say the least. And surprise, surprise, Microsoft has no idea how the hackers got a hold of this to begin with. So also uh, as a side note, I'd like to point out that they're not giving you the security logs now. They're giving the security logs in September. With the default retention period is 90 days. So you will get them in two months and all the logs from this attack will be gone. Yeah, that seems real suspicious. That is, I didn't know I didn't notice that. That's that's genius. <laughs> it's something. <laughs> well, if your Microsoft is genius, it's like, well, how do we cover this up as best we can? Yeah. And and supposedly they contacted everybody who was affected by this, you know, but I'm hesitant to believe that they even know. Uh, but I don't think they're ever going to find out how this key was was lost. And I think what actually happened is I think someone on the inside sold it. I think that's yeah. the most likely scenario here. Because if they because if somebody hacked this, like that means that all of the keys that are in the same. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of like like because if this was broken into externally due to a security issue, then lots of keys may potentially be at vulnerable and exposed. Not only that, but if they were able to get access to this, which is obviously a highly sensitive piece of software, who knows what else they, they got access, access to? Yeah. yeah. Unless it just weirdly was like posted in a GitHub or something, like you said, that would be kind of the best possible outcome of this. Yeah. Well, it would even be funnier though, if they did lose it because it was in an S3 bucket. <laughs> or on a USB thumb drive, <laughs> someone dropped outside. All right. So the re the reason that we're even mentioning is this: if you have Microsoft Cloud products, obviously you're going to, be, and you could have been attacked and been none the wiser for this whole thing. And as Matt said, you're not even get access to the logs to, to for you to be able to investigate whether you are have have a problem here. They're going to tell you. They're going to be. Well, they've already told you. <laughs> Hopefully. So they've told a handful of people, and they're like, "Oh well, these other people won't find out anyway, so we just won't tell them." To make it the, make it look like it's uh, smaller, but that's all that's all speculation. So just letting the lawyers know that we don't know that for a fact. We're just guessing. So Microsoft seems to have closed all the holes anyway, according to what they've said. And if you are not a government organization or not part of a government organization, there's a pretty pretty decent chance that you are not really impacted by this. But when you do get access to those logs, you might want to. See if there is any possible indicators going on in there. Because as we mentioned, that just because they had access back then doesn't mean they didn't put in something that's going to gain their more persistent access as well. So there could be indicators in there that there is some kind of persistent access you need to look for. And you should also, even before the, you get those logs, use what you can to see if there is anything else that could have been dropped in there as a backdoor. All right. That's pretty horrifying, but we have something else on Google blocking staff's internet access to reduce attacks, which will obviously save them from the same uh, fate that has hit Microsoft. So in a pilot program, Google has selected more than 2,500 employees to disable internet access on select des desktops, the exception of internal web-based tools and Google. Supposedly they're going to allow employees to opt out and they're opening it up to volunteers. That 
seems weird. It doesn't seem like that's a great way to secure. <laughs> We're only going to secure volunteers. Uh, well, I think I think what happened based on the way that I read the article is they picked 2,500 people at random, turned off their internet access, and there was a huge uproar. <laughs> and like, okay, we aren't going to do this. We'll ask for some volunteers and allow people to opt out of it because there was probably a practical mutiny at Google when they did yeah, this. Uh, some workers that need the internet to do their job will get exceptions. Uh, what I had seen, I saw somebody commenting on this, that it was really only for desktops, not for Chromebooks. Because I know that Google said several months ago they were going to roll Chromebooks out to everybody uh, and all workers were going to have to use Chromebooks for their day-to-day -day work. Oh, that's interesting. So that's how they're distinguishing between systems is a desktop is a Windows machine or a Linux machine, I guess. Oh, well, Maybe. probably a Windows yeah. or a Mac. I don't know exactly how it and is. And Chromebooks but... are Chromebooks. Hmm. And Could Chromebooks be. are, yeah, I don't know. So discussion points. In addition, some employees will have no root access, means they won't be able to run administrative commands or do things like install software, which should be standard, right? You would think. But the way that that sounds seems to indicate like most everybody has root access then. I mean, yeah. I would think it should have already been this way that uh, you this because I think if it were true that most users did not have root access, this would not even been a thing, would not have been mentioned. So Google was founded in 1998. I could see where, you know, scrappy startup, everyone's an engineer. Everybody would have root admin access for like the first couple of years, but it's been 25 years. <laughs> yeah. And, That's rough. and anywhere I've ever been, this is a big deal. It's not having root access or admin access on desktops. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, maybe just because they're a tech company, maybe it's more normalized to tech companies, but most places I've ever worked. Mm. Yeah. That's, it's always reduced privilege, least privilege. Yeah, that's true. I've, I've never, I've never worked for a software company. So yeah. that may be a bigger deal because I've heard different folks say, well, you can't run certain software development tools without having local access, local admin access. Yeah, not having local admin access is definitely a pain in the end of the world. All right, the next item, turning off, quote, turning off most internet access ensures attackers cannot easily run arbitrary code remotely or grab data, the description explained. So I think that this is mostly around the remotely part. I think they're they're talking about command and control. They're not talking about the running code. Yeah, well, it's poorly worded then. Because the way that I read this, was, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> How blocking access is going to prevent code from running, unless they're talking about, you know, limiting the ability to get the code to the machine in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it too, for sure. But the first so, thing I thought of when I read this headline was, well, so much for the Beyond Corp concept. Uh, to quote from uh, Google's website on Beyond Corp, Beyond Corp began as an internal Google initiative to enable every employee to work from untrusted networks without the use of a VPN. Now Beyond Corp is used by most Googlers every day to provide user and device-based authentication and authorization for Google's code infrastructure and corporate resources. It's like, it sounds like this whole Beyond Corp uh, concept may not have worked out as well as they thought. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to start resorting to these kinds of actions to block everybody from the internet. Yeah, because the, the Beyond Corp was their zero trust initiative, right? Right. Yeah. Hmm. And according to them, it's gone swimmingly. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, that's how well, all corporate initiatives go. Up until right, as, as we've as we've numerously witnessed. <laughs> yeah. But I think the idea behind this is not terrible. But this is not going to work. There's no way you can remove employee access from the internet. It's a non-starter, especially yeah. for a tech company. I mean, so, they need access to information and resources that are on the internet. I mean, it's critical for for tech tech companies, and especially for SaaS companies like Google. All of their tools yeah. are in the cloud, right? So, and even the tools that they don't own, I mean, everything, your ticketing system is a SaaS now, your EDR console is a SaaS now, although I'm sure they're using something internal, like literally everything is a SaaS and everything is connected to a website and most of them are external. Yep. And, and if you block access, employees are going to, you're going to lose employees to begin with because they're going to feel like they're being hampered in there and they're going to be. Uh, hamstrung in their ability to do their job in the first place, or you're going to have to give almost everybody an exception um, for this. And of course, once you start doing something like this, employees are going to start trying to find ways around it. You know, if they're going to bring in personal <laughs> computers with hotspots and USB devices to transfer data, or who knows what kind of shenanigans they'll get up to, to try to get around these kinds of blocks. And when you're talking about enough smart people that work at Google who are technical experts, I can't imagine what kind of workarounds they're going to think of. I mean, there are better things you could do if you wanted to, 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 to limit the footprint or limit the exposure here. And, you know, we could do an entire podcast series on, you know, these ideas. So I'm just going to list a couple I think would be uh, a better trade-off than what Google is, is doing here. So users who have admin access need at least two accounts, a regular account and an admin account. You know, the regular account, you can do email, internet, other regular office activities and so on. And the root account, no access to email, no access to the internet. You have to check it out of a PIM to use. It has greater password requirements. It has no workstation access and you increase your monitoring of that account. You could also have limited access on the proxies to websites based on user access and the risk rating. You know, you, li you limit the users who have root accounts to less categories than other other regular users, or you could use a web isolation proxy for some or all the traffic. You could have admin users use an ephemeral VDI that forces a logout after a certain period of time and is destroyed, you know, maybe two to four hours or something like that. I mean, there's a lot could be done versus cutting off internet access. I mean, this kind of idea about cutting off internet access, this failed 20 years ago, you know, it is not going to work today. Oh, history, what is it? History never repeats, but it rhymes. Yeah, uh, I think it's Mark Twain. So finally for our third title, huh, I feel like these were out of order. Oh, well. Fishing with QR codes, how Darktrace detected and blocked the bait. From Darktrace, obviously. I've been hearing some rumblings from companies lately that they're seeing increasing numbers of QR code phishing emails, but we haven't talked about it. And honestly, nothing had crossed any of my RSS feeds about this. So I went to go find an article to discuss and found one uh, from Darktrace. Actually, I don't, since I went and found this article, I didn't check the date that it occurred um, real quick. 10 years ago, magic probably. Editing. 6th of July. All right. That's not too bad. That's only a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago. They state in this article, they are also seeing a significant increase. And they said that in this case, the QR code was supposedly part of two-factor auth. Uh, QR code phishing is simply a normal phishing email, 
but instead of a link or a malicious attachment, there's a QR code to scan with your phone. You've somehow never seen a QR code. It's a picture that encodes information such as a link through the use of squares, usually, although there's other patterns, there's like mazes and other ways. And a QR code can encode three kilobytes of data, which is 4,269 alphanumeric characters. That's, I feel like 3K of data on 4,269 alphanumeric characters does not match up exactly, but. Well, that's still a fairly decent amount of code you could put in if yeah. for a script or something. Yeah, you could, you could. So a lot of times it's just a link. When you, a lot of times if you'll scan these with your phone, it'll say, do you want to go to this link? But theoretically, yeah, you could put a script in there. And these emails have little to no text to trigger on. So the big things that a phishing email, excuse me, a big thing that email protections trigger on is they look over the text for words that are related to scams. They look at the links, they look at the attachments and run them through a sandbox. And these QR code phishing attempts have none of those things. So they skip right past most phishing protections. Someone online has coined this quishing, and I wish that I had never heard that. <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> this is a family-friendly podcast, so I guess it's, I guess it's <laughs> not after that joke at the beginning, is it? So given that to get a QR code to run, you usually have to point your phone at it and use the camera. So I have to imagine this would lead to lower click rates for the attacker, right? Well, maybe. Yeah. Um, it depends on if they're using this to do credential harvesting, then, you know, it's just that they're going to, they're going to put in their credentials on the phone versus could put them in a computer it really doesn't change. But the expectation, I guess, is a little bit different though, because when a user scans a QR code, you have to figure out you know, what is their expectation for what they're going to see when they click on that code. Because if they're expecting that this is going to be some kind of two-factor auth, they click on and then takes them to a website and ask them to put in their credentials, it might throw them off a bit. Uh, so I'm not sure. And without a lot of text, I'm not sure what the what the what the lead-in is or what the what what they're trying to convince the user that they're well, doing by scanning the QR yeah, code. The ones the ones in this article were the two-factor. They're saying like, you must set up your two-factor. Please scan this and enter your credentials to set up two-factor. Mm, yeah. So which that's the actually the only place that I have ever seen QR codes used is in fact in two factor auth. So that is that is a pretty good pretty good lure. But yeah, I can't imagine like you've won this thing. Scan it with your scan it with your phone to collect your. I don't know. I don't know. I guess I could work. I just think that adding that extra step in there is going to reduce the number of people because it gives people you know another second to be like, should I be doing this? So it's like I said, it's currently undetectable by any email security products. I, from what I've heard, it's generally only being detected by manual review and forward to phishing services, et cetera. Are there any legitimate reasons to use a QR code in email? I don't think so. The two-factor auth I've seen is usually on the web page. Like you sign in first, then you click on set up my two-factor, and then it takes you to the QR code. It doesn't come via email. Actually, you know, I have seen a QR code in like Amazon returns where they'll email you a QR code, yeah, but say, well, click on this QR code mm -hmm. and then you take it to, uh, yeah, but you, you don't, know, you don't do scan that. Someone else scans that. So that would be, but I could see that being a phishing email saying, scan this to start your Amazon return or something, or mm -hmm. see the status of your Amazon return. And that is close enough, but either way, yeah, I would just, if you have it, people shouldn't be using their professional accounts for Amazon. So I still yeah, say that if you can detect not. it, you should block it. Yeah, it's interesting if, if, and that seems to indicate that 
most, you know, email security products are not doing image parsing, image recognition, right? OCR mm. uh, on their yeah. emails then. Yeah, that makes sense. Because what I, what I, what I realized recently is that like Microsoft or on the Mac preview will allow you to do OCR on images. Mm. So you can actually highlight and copy text out of images from Microsoft or from Apple preview. So mm. if, if email security products are not doing OCR and they send an image rather than text in the email, and you could do that copy and paste without too much trouble, that could lead to other problems with email security if that becomes a thing. Because if they were doing, if email security products were doing QR, or I'm sorry, OCR reading today, they would just need to make some adjustments to the code to also look for QR codes and not just text. Gotcha. All right, that makes sense. All right, so what should you do about it? Uh, new methodology, if you haven't seen it yet, recommend talking to your analysts. So it's not yeah. the... And, and and right now this looks like it's you know I, it, it, at least now it looks to be credential harvesting. But I would yeah. expect that if there's new mobile malware, this could be a new delivery mechanism for that as well. Yeah, don't you have to have rooted your phone to install outside of the? Or I mean, you have to you have to do something to allow installing outside of the stores usually. But, well, I don't have an Android, so I can't speak to that. But for Apple, you do. I think for Android, you have to, there's some acceptance, but again, like if it's, if it's a well-crafted or it's something that they expect it, I could see. But if there's a flaw in the, in the code, yep. then yep. Zero day installing the malware may have nothing to, to do with installing an application via Fair the, enough. you know, the, the app store or whatever. Fair enough. So yeah, and check with your protection, your email protection, validate that they either have the capability to recognize these, or if they do not have the capability, push them to add it. They should already be working on this. I know I, I know that of at least one company that is adding this, but they said it's not public, so I'm not going to name them. So they're, they're, they know about this. They're working on it. And yeah. uh, oh, good. Yeah, it might be worth an email communication to the employees also, yeah, let them know of this them. thing that's going on. Because if they have not seen it before, they may be have no expectation that that is actually an attack. Yeah, I mean, this this happened. We talked about this the other day about like WhatsApp. Like, it seems like every time it changes a little bit, people lose completely, forget all of the stuff they ever did before. It's wild. Yeah, Very you can't wild. expect regular employees to recognize a new attack vector. I know, uh, I'm not such. like, but just. Like still, like you change one little thing about the attack and everything they've learned just goes out the window. I don't know. I know I'm overly, overly suspicious. Oh, that looks like that is all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 